Section 16 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. John, Volume 1, by J. C. Ryle. Chapter 4, verses 7 to 26. Christ's tact and condescension. Christ's readiness to give. The excellence of Christ's gifts. The necessity of conviction of sin. The uselessness of formal religion. Christ's kindness to great sinners. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. John, chapter 4, verses 7 to 26. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me a drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Then said the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me a drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water, that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that sayest thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh, when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messias cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. The history of the Samaritan woman, contained in these verses, is one of the most interesting and instructive passages in St. John's Gospel. St. John has shown us, in the case of Nicodemus, how our Lord dealt with a self-righteous formalist. He now shows us how our Lord dealt with an ignorant, carnal-minded woman whose moral character was more than ordinarily bad. There are lessons in the passage for ministers and teachers which they would do well to ponder. We should mark, firstly, the mingled tact and condescension of Christ in dealing with a careless sinner. Our Lord was sitting by Jacob's well when a woman of Samaria came thither to draw water. At once, he says to her, Give me a drink. He does not wait for her to speak to him. 
he does not begin by reproving her sins though he doubtless knew them he opens communication by asking a favor he approaches the woman's mind by the subject of water which was naturally uppermost in her thoughts simple as this request may seem it opened a door to spiritual conversation it threw a bridge across the gulf which lay between her and him it led to the conversion of her soul our lord's conduct in this place should be carefully remembered by all who want to do good to the thoughtless and spiritually ignorant it is vain to expect that such persons will voluntarily come to us and begin to seek knowledge we must begin with them and go down to them in the spirit of courteous and friendly aggression it is vain to expect that such persons will be prepared for our instruction and will at once see and acknowledge the wisdom of all we are doing we must go to work wisely we must study the best avenues to their hearts and the most likely way of arresting their attention there is a handle to every mind and our chief aim must be to get hold of it above all we must be kind in manner and beware of showing that we feel conscious of our own superiority if we let ignorant people fancy that we think we are doing them a great favor in talking to them about religion there is little hope of doing good to their souls we should mark secondly christ's readiness to give mercies to careless sinners he tells the samaritan woman that if she had asked he would have given her living water he knew the character of the person before him perfectly well yet he says if she had asked he would have given he would have given the living water of grace mercy and peace the infinite willingness of christ to receive sinners is a golden truth which ought to be treasured up in our hearts and diligently impressed on others the lord jesus is far more ready to hear than we are to pray and far more ready to give favors than we are to ask them all day long he stretches out his hands to the disobedient and gainsaying he has thoughts of pity and compassion towards the vilest of sinners even when they have no thoughts of him he stands waiting to bestow mercy and grace on the worst and most unworthy if they will only cry to him he will never draw back from that well-known promise ask and ye shall receive seek and ye shall find the lost will discover at the last day that they had not because they asked not we should mark thirdly the priceless excellence of christ's gifts when compared with the things of this world our lord tells the samaritan woman he that drinketh of this water shall thirst again but he that drinketh of the water that i shall give him shall never thirst the truth of the principle here laid down may be seen on every side by all who are not blinded by prejudice or love of the world thousands of men have every temporal good thing that the heart could wish and are yet weary and dissatisfied it is now as it was in david's time there be many that say who will show us any good psalm four verse six riches and rank and place and power and learning and amusements are utterly unable to fill the soul he that only drinks of these waters is sure to thirst again every ahab finds a naboth's vineyard hard by his palace and every haman sees a mordecai at the gate there is no heart satisfaction in this world until we believe in christ jesus alone can fill up the empty places of our inward man jesus alone can give solid lasting enduring happiness the peace that he imparts is a fountain which once set flowing within the soul flows on to all eternity its waters may have their ebbing seasons but they are living waters and they shall never be completely dried we should mark fourthly 
the absolute necessity of conviction of sin before a soul can be converted to god the samaritan woman seems to have been comparatively unmoved until our lord exposed her breach of the seventh commandment those heart-searching words go call thy husband appear to have pierced her conscience like an arrow from that moment however ignorant she speaks like an earnest sincere inquirer after truth and the reason is evident she felt that her spiritual disease was discovered for the first time in her life she saw herself to bring thoughtless people to this state of mind should be the principal aim of all teachers and ministers of the gospel they should carefully copy their master's example in this place till men and women are brought to feel their sinfulness and need no real good is ever done to their souls till a sinner sees himself as god sees him he will continue careless trifling and unmoved by all means we must labor to convince the unconverted man of sin to prick his conscience to open his eyes to show him himself to this end we must expound the length and breadth of god's holy law to this end we must denounce every practice contrary to that law however fashionable and customary this is the only way to do good never does a soul value the gospel medicine until it feels its disease never does a man see any beauty in christ as a saviour until he discovers that he is himself a lost and ruined sinner ignorance of sin is invariably attended by neglect of christ we should mark fifthly the uselessness of any religion which only consists of formality the samaritan woman when awakened to spiritual concern started questions about the comparative merits of the samaritan and jewish modes of worshipping god our lord tells her that true and acceptable worship depends not on the place in which it is offered but on the state of the worshipper's heart he declares the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this place nor at jerusalem worship the father he adds that true worshippers shall worship in spirit and in truth the principle contained in these sentences can never be too strongly impressed on professing christians we are all naturally inclined to make religion a mere matter of outward forms and ceremonies and to attach an excessive importance to our own practical manner of worshipping god we must beware of this spirit and especially when we first begin to think seriously about our souls the heart is the principal thing in all our approaches to god the lord looketh on the heart first samuel chapter sixteen verse seven the most gorgeous cathedral service is offensive in god's sight if all is gone through coldly heartlessly and without grace the feeblest gathering of three or four poor believers in a cottage to read the bible and pray is a more acceptable sight to him who searches the heart than the fullest congregation which is ever gathered in st peter's at rome we should mark lastly christ's gracious willingness to reveal himself to the chief of sinners he concludes his conversation with the samaritan woman by telling her openly and unreservedly that he is the saviour of the world i that speak to thee he says am the messiah nowhere in all the gospels do we find our lord making such a full avowal of his nature and office as he does in this place and this avowal be it remembered was made not to learned scribes or moral pharisees but to one who up to that day had been an ignorant thoughtless and immoral person dealings with sinners such as these form one of the grand peculiarities of the gospel whatever a man's past life may have been there is hope and a remedy for him in christ if he is only willing to hear christ's voice and follow him christ is willing to receive him at once as a friend and to bestow on him the fullest measure of mercy and grace 
the Samaritan woman, the penitent thief, the Philippian jailer, the publican Zacchaeus, all are patterns of Christ's readiness to show mercy and to confer full and immediate pardons. It is his glory that, like a great physician, he will undertake to cure those who are apparently incurable, and that none are too bad for him to love and heal. Let these things sink down into our hearts. Whatever else we doubt, let us never doubt that Christ's love to sinners passeth knowledge, and that Christ is as willing to receive as he is almighty to save. What are we ourselves? This is the question, after all, which demands our attention. We may have been up to this day careless, thoughtless, sinful as the woman whose story we have been reading, but yet there is hope. He who talked with the Samaritan woman at the well is yet living at God's right hand and never changes. Let us only ask, and he will give us living water. Notes John chapter 4, verses 7 to 26. Verse 7. Then cometh, woman, draw water. The scarcity of water in the hot climates of the east makes drawing water from the nearest well an important part of the daily business of an eastern household. We learn from other parts of Scripture that it was a work ordinarily done by women. Genesis chapter 24, verse 11, 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 11. A well became naturally a common meeting place for the inhabitants of a neighborhood, and especially for the young people. Judges chapter 5, verse 11. The insinuation, however, of some writers, as Schottgen, that the Samaritan woman's motives in coming to the well were possibly immoral, seems destitute of any foundation. Bad as her moral character evidently was, we have no right to heap upon her more blame than is warranted by facts. Augustine regards this woman as a type of the Gentile church, not now justified, but even now at the point to be justified. I doubt whether we were meant by the Holy Ghost to take this view. There is great danger in adopting such allegorical interpretations. They insensibly draw away the mind from the plain lessons of Scripture. Musculus remarks what a wonderful instance it is of sovereign grace that our Lord should turn away from the learned scribes, Pharisees, and priests to converse with and convert such a person as this woman, to all appearance so utterly unworthy of notice. He also observes how singularly our least movements are overruled by God's providence. Like Rebecca and Rachel, the woman came to the well knowing nothing of the importance of that day's visit to her soul. Jesus saith, Give me to drink. In this simple request of our Lord there are four things deserving notice. a. It was a gracious act of spiritual aggression on a sinner. He did not wait for the woman to speak to him, but was the first to begin conversation. b. It was an act of marvelous condescension. He by whom all things were made, the creator of fountains, brooks, and rivers, is not ashamed to ask a draught of water from the hand of one of his sinful creatures. c. It was an act full of wisdom and prudence. He does not at once force religion on the attention of the woman, and rebuke her for her sins. He begins with a subject apparently indifferent, and yet one of which the woman's mind was doubtless full. He asks her for water. d. It was an act full of the nicest tact, and exhibiting perfect knowledge of the human mind. He asks a favor, and puts himself under an obligation. No line of proceeding, it is well known to all wise people, would be more likely to conciliate the woman's feelings toward him, and to make her willing to hear his teaching. Simple as the request was, it contains principles which deserve the closest attention of all who desire to do good to ignorant and thoughtless sinners. 
the idea of euthymius that our lord pretended thirst in order to introduce conversation is unworthy of notice cyril thinks that our lord intended to make a practical protest against the exclusiveness of the jews by asking drink of a samaritan woman and to show her that he disapproved of the custom of his nation verse eight his disciples gone by meat this verse is an instance of our lord's general rule not to work a miracle in order to supply his own wants he who could feed five thousand with a few loaves and fishes when he willed was content to buy food like any other man it is an instance of his lowly mindedness the creator of all things though rich for our sakes became poor it ought to teach christians that they are not meant to be so spiritual as to neglect the management of money and a reasonable use of it for the supply of their wants god could feed his children as he fed elijah by a daily miracle but he knows it is better for our souls and more likely to call grace into exercise not to feed them so but to make them think and use means there is no real spirituality in being careless about money jesus himself allowed his disciples to buy the word rendered meat means nothing more than food or nourishment and must not be confined to flesh out of the sixteen places where it is used in the new testament there is not one where it necessarily signifies flesh the meat offerings of the old testament consisted of nothing but flour oil and incense leviticus chapter two verses one and two the meaning of the word meat in the english language has evidently changed since the last revision of the english bible the whole verse is an instance of one of those short parenthetical explanatory comments which are common in st john's gospel its object is to explain the circumstances of our lord being alone at the well and the fact that he did not ask a disciple to give him water verse nine then saith woman how is it a jew samaria this question implies that the woman was surprised at our lord speaking to her it was an unexpected act of condescension on his part and as such arrested her attention thus one point at any rate was gained it is a great matter if we can only get a careless sinner to give us a quiet hearing we shall soon see how our lord improved the opportunity how the woman knew our lord to be a jew is a matter of conjecture some think that she knew it by the dialect that he spoke some think that she knew it by the fringe upon his dress which he probably wore in conformity to the mosaic law numbers chapter fifteen verses thirty eight and thirty nine and which the samaritans very likely neglected one thing is very clear there was nothing in our lord's personal appearance when he was a man upon earth to distinguish him from any other jewish traveller who might have been found sitting at a well there was nothing eccentric or peculiar about his dress he looked like other men i venture the opinion that in the woman's question stress should be laid on the word woman she was not only surprised that a jewish man asked for a drink of a samaritan but also that he asked it of a woman the jews have no dealings samaritans this sentence is generally thought with much reason to be the explanatory comment of st john and not the words of the samaritan woman it certainly seems more natural to take it so the sentence should then be read as a parenthesis calvin thinks it is the woman's words but his reasons are not convincing the enmity between the jews and samaritans here referred to no doubt originated in the separation of the ten tribes under jeroboam and the establishment of the kingdom of israel it was exceedingly increased after the ten tribes were carried into captivity by the assyrians 
by the fact that the Samaritans became mingled with foreigners, whom the king of Assyria sent to Samaria, from Babylon, and other places, and so lost their right to be called pure Jews. Second Kings chapter 17, verse 1, etc. It was further aggravated by the opposition which the inhabitants of Samaria made to the rebuilding of Jerusalem, after the return from the captivity of Babylon, in the days of Ezra, Ezra chapter 4, verse 10, etc. In the days of our Lord the Jews seem to have gone into the extreme of regarding the Samaritans as entirely foreigners, and aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. When they told our Lord that he was a Samaritan and had a devil, they meant the expression to convey the bitterest scorn and reproach. John chapter 8, verse 48. It is clear, however, from the conversation in this chapter that the Samaritans, however mistaken on many points, were not ignorant heathens. They regarded themselves as descended from Jacob. They had a kind of Old Testament religion. They expected the coming of Messiah. The bitter and exclusive spirit of the Jews towards all other nations, referred to in this verse, is curiously confirmed by the language used about the Jews by heathen writers at Rome. Exclusiveness was noted as one among their peculiarities. The immense difficulty with which even the apostles got over this exclusive feeling, and went forth to preach to the Gentiles, is noticeable both in the Acts and Epistles. Acts chapter 10 verse 28, chapter 11 verse 2, Galatians chapter 2 verse 12, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 16. The utter absence of real charity and love among men, in the days when our Lord was upon earth, ought not to be overlooked. Well would it be if men had never quarrelled about religion after he left the world. Quarrels among the crew of a sinking ship are not more hideous, unseemly, and irrational than the majority of quarrels among professors of religion. A historian might truly apply St. John's words to many a period in church history and say, The Romanists have no dealings with the Protestants, or The Lutherans have no dealings with the Calvinists, or The Calvinists have no dealings with the Arminians, or the Episcopalians have no dealing with the Presbyterians, or the Baptists have no dealing with those who baptize infants, or the Plymouth Brethren have no dealings with anybody who does not join their company. These things ought not so to be. They are the scandal of Christianity, the joy of the devil, and the greatest stumbling-block to the spread of the gospel. The Greek words translated, have no dealings, mean literally, use not anything together with, the Samaritans. Pierce says, the Jews would not eat or drink with the Samaritans, would not drink out of the same cup, or eat of the same dish with them. This fact throws much light on the woman's surprise at our Lord's request, Give me to drink. Verse 10. Jesus answered, etc. In this verse our Lord proceeds to use the opportunity which the woman's question affords him. He passes over for the present her expression of surprise at a Jew speaking to a Samaritan. He begins by exciting her curiosity and raising her expectations, by speaking of something within her reach which he calls living water. The first step to take with a careless sinner, after his attention has been arrested, is to produce on his mind the impression that we can tell him of something to his advantage within his reach. There is a certain vagueness in our Lord's words which exhibit his consummate wisdom. A systematic statement of doctrinal truth would have been thrown away at this stage of the woman's feeling. The general and figurative language which our Lord employed was exactly calculated to arouse her imagination and to lead her on to further inquiry. THE GIFT OF GOD This expression is variously explained. Some think, as Augustine, Rupertus, 
Jensenius, Whitby, and Alford that it means the Holy Spirit, that peculiar gift which it was the Messiah's special office to impart to men in greater abundance than it had before been imparted. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, chapter 10, verse 45. Some think, as Brentius, Bucer, Musculnus, Colovius, Grotius, and Baradius, that it means the gracious opportunity which God is graciously giving to thee. If thou didst but know what a door of life is close to thee, thou wouldst joyfully use it. Some think, as Euthymius, Toletus, Bullinger, Gauter, Hooker, Beza, Rollock, Lightfoot, Glacius, Dyke, Hindersom, and Gill, that it means Christ himself. God's gracious gift to a sinful world. If thou didst but know that God has actually given his only begotten Son, according to promise, and that he has come into the world, and that it is he who is speaking to thee, thou wouldst at once ask of him living water. Some think that it means God's gift, and especially his gift of grace, which is now being proclaimed and made manifest to the world by the appearing on earth of his Son. See Romans chapter 5, verse 15. This seems to be the view of Cyril, Lamp, Theophylact, Zwingle, and Calvin. Of these four views, the last seems to me, on the whole, the most probable and satisfactory. The first sounds strange and unlike the usual teaching of Scripture. If thou knowest the Holy Spirit, thou wouldst have asked, is an expression we can hardly expect at this period of our Lord's ministry, when the mission of the Comforter had not yet been explained. The second view seems hardly more natural than the first. The third view is undoubtedly recommended by the fact that Christ is frequently spoken of as God's greatest gift to the world. If the woman had really known anything aright about Messiah, and had known that he was before her, she would have asked of him living water. Nevertheless, it is a strong objection to this view, that it makes our Lord apparently say the same thing twice over, If thou knewest Christ, and that it is Christ who speaks. The last view makes the first clause general, If thou knewest the grace of God, and the second particular, If thou also knewest that the Saviour himself was with thee, Thus both clauses receive a meaning. LIVING WATER The meaning of this expression, like the gift of God, is variously explained. Some, as Colovius and Chemnitius, seem to think it means the doctrine of God's mercy, pardon, cleansing, and justification. Others, such as Chrysostom, Augustine, Cyril, Theophylact, Calvin, Beza, Galter, Musculnus, and Ferris, think it means the Holy Spirit, renewing and sanctification. I doubt whether either view is quite correct. I am inclined with Bullinger and Rollock to regard the expression as a general figurative description of everything which it is Christ's office to bestow on the soul of man, pardon, peace, mercy, grace, justification, and sanctification. As water is cleansing, purifying, cooling, refreshing, thirst-satisfying to man's body, so are Christ's gifts to the soul. I think everything that a sinful soul needs is purposely intended under the general words, living water. It comprises not only the justifying blood which cleanses from all sin, but the sanctifying grace of the Spirit, by which we cleanse ourselves from all filthiness. Not only the inward peace, which is the result of pardon, but the sense of inward comfort, which is the companion of renewal of hearts. The idea of water, we should remember, is specially brought forward in some of the Old Testament promises of good things to come, see Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, chapter 44, verse 3, Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 1, etc., Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1, chapter 14, verse 8. 
a sprinkling of clean water was particularly mentioned as one of the things messiah was to give isaiah chapter fifty two verse fifteen ezekiel chapter thirty six verse twenty five to an intelligent reader of the old testament the mention of living water would at once raise up the idea of messiah's times the word living applied here to water must not be pressed too far it does not necessarily mean anything more than fresh running waters thus it is said that isaac's servant found a well of living waters genesis chapter twenty six verse nineteen see also numbers chapter nineteen verse seventeen canticles chapter four verse fifteen there was undoubtedly a deep meaning in our lord's words and a tacit reference to the verse in jeremiah where god speaks of himself as the fountain of living waters jeremiah chapter two verse thirteen nevertheless the first idea that the words would convey to the woman's mind would probably be no more than this that he who sat before her had better fresher and more valuable water than that of the well the fact is that our lord purposefully used a figurative general expression in order to lead the woman's mind gently on if he had said he would have given thee grace and mercy she would have been unprepared for such purely doctrinal language and it would have called forth prejudice and dislike there is a vast quantity of deep truth contained in this verse it is rich in first principles linked together in a most instructive chain one christ has living water to give to men two if men would only ask christ would at once give three men do not ask because they are ignorant the verse condemns all who die unpardoned they have not because they ask not they ask not because they are blind to their condition to remove this blindness and ignorance must be the first object we should aim at in dealing with thoughtless and unconverted man the notion of ambrose cyprian and rupertus that living water here means baptism is too monstrous to require refutation it is only a sample of the preposterous views of some of the fathers and their followers about the sacraments Bengel remarks on this verse of our lord's readiness to draw lessons of spiritual instruction from every object near him to the jews desiring bread he spoke of the bread of life john chapter six verse thirty three to the people at jerusalem at break of day he speaks of the light of the world referring probably to the rising sun john chapter eight verses two and twelve to the woman coming to draw water he speaks of living water verse eleven the woman saith etc the words of the woman in this and the following verse imply surprise curiosity and perhaps a slight sneer at any rate they show that her attention was arrested a strange jew at a well suddenly speaks to her about living water what could he mean was he in earnest or not with a woman's curiosity she desires to know sir the greek word so rendered is generally translated lord this leads some as chrysostom to think that the woman's heart was so far impressed now that she purposely used a term of respect and reverence we must not however lay too much stress on the word it is certainly translated sir in other places where inferiors speak to superiors matthew chapter thirteen verse twenty seven chapter twenty one verse thirty chapter twenty seven verse sixty three john chapter four verse forty nine chapter five verse seven chapter twelve verse twenty one chapter twenty verse fifteen revelation chapter seven verse fourteen yet it is difficult to see what other word the woman could have used in addressing a strange man without rudeness and discourtesy nothing to draw with the greek expression here is simply a substantive meaning an instrument for drawing water what it is we are left to conjecture 
Schleusner suggests from nonus that it must mean a cup fastened to a rope. The well is deep. These words, according to the universal testimony of travelers at this day, are still literally true. The well is at least thirty yards deep, and to a person not provided with a rope, as the woman doubtless saw was our Lord's case, the water would be inaccessible. Whence, then, that living water? The Greek word here rendered that is simply the article commonly translated thee. It is like that prophet. John chapter 1 verse 21. The ignorance of the woman in thinking of nothing but material water naturally strikes us, yet it is nothing more than we see in many other instances in the Gospels. Nicodemus could not see any but a carnal meaning in the new birth. The disciples could not understand our Lord's having meat to eat unless it was literal meat. The Jews thought the bread from heaven was literal bread. John chapter 3 verse 4, chapter 4 verse 33, chapter 6 verse 34. The natural heart of man always tries to put a carnal and material sense on spiritual expressions. Hence have arisen the greatest errors about the sacraments. Verse 12. Art thou greater? This question exhibits the woman's curiosity to know who the stranger before her could be. Who art thou, that thou speakest of living water? It also savors of a sneer and incredulity. Dost thou mean to say that thou canst give me better and more abundant supplies of water than a well which the patriarch Jacob found sufficient for himself and all his numerous company? Dost thou pretend to know of a better well? Art thou, a poor weary traveller, in all appearance, so great a person that thou dost possess a better well than Jacob possessed? Our father Jacob gave us the well. Let it be noted that the woman carefully claimed relationship with Jacob, and called him our father, though after all the intermixture of the Samaritans with the heathen nations, the relationship was not very easy of proof. But it is common to find people shutting their eyes to difficulties when they want to prove a connection or relationship. The advocates of an extreme view of apostolical succession seldom condescend to notice difficulties when they assert that episcopally ordained ministers can trace their order up to the apostles. When it says that Jacob gave the well, there is probably a reference to the grant which Jacob made to his son Joseph of the district near the well. From Joseph came the tribe of Ephraim, to which, no doubt, the Samaritan woman claimed to belong. Genesis chapter 48 verse 22 Drink, himself, children, cattle. These words were doubtless said to show the goodness and abundance of the water. Did the stranger at the well really mean to say that he could give any better water? Bucer, on this verse, remarks how the Samaritans prided themselves on their relationship to Jacob and the possession of his well, while they made no effort to imitate his goodness, and points out the tendency of superstition to the same thing in every age. True piety, he says, does not consist in having Jacob's well and Jacob's land, but Jacob's spirit, not in keeping the bones of the saints, but in imitating their lives. Verse 13. Jesus answered, etc., in this and the following verse, our Lord proceeds to raise the desires of the woman by exalting the value of the living water of which he has spoken. He still refrains from distinct statements of doctrinal truth. He still adheres to the figurative expression, water, and yet he makes an advance and leads on the woman gently and almost imperceptibly to glorious spiritual things. Now for the first time he begins to speak of everlasting life. Whosoever drinketh this water thirst again, it will be noted that our Lord does not answer the woman's questions directly. 
he keeps steadily to the one point he desires to fasten her mind on viz the infinite excellence of a certain living water which he had to give at first he reminds her of what she knew well by laborious experience the water of jacob's well might be good and plentiful but still he who drank of it was only satisfied for a few hours he soon thirsted again we cannot doubt that there was a deep latent thought in our lord's words in this sentence he would have us know that the waters of jacob's well are typical of all temporal and material good things they cannot satisfy the soul they have no power to fill the heart of an immortal creature like man he who only drinks of them is sure to thirst again some have thought that there is a tacit reference in these words to the woman's insatiable love of sin the similarity ought to be noticed between our lord's line of argument in this verse and the line he adopts in recommending to the jews the bread of life in the sixth chapter he showed the jews the superiority of the bread of life over the manna by the words your fathers did eat manna and are dead john chapter six verse forty nine just so in this place he shows the inferiority of the water of jacob's well to the living water by saying he that drinks of this water shall thirst again the two passages deserve a careful comparison verse fourteen whoever drinketh never thirst these words contain a precious promise and declare a glorious truth of the gospel the benefits of christ's gifts are promised to every one who is willing to receive them whosoever and whatsoever he may be he may have been as bad as the samaritan woman but the promise is for him as well as for her whosoever drinketh shall never thirst the declaration shall never thirst does not mean shall never feel any spiritual want at all it simply asserts the abiding and enduring nature of the benefits which christ gives he that drinks of the living water which christ gives shall never entirely and completely lose the cleansing purifying and soul-refreshing effects which it produces our english translation of this sentence hardly gives the full sense of the greek literally rendered it would be shall never thirst unto eternity the same expression is used frequently in st john's gospel see john chapter six verses fifty one to fifty eight chapter eight verse fifty one chapter ten verse twenty eight chapter eleven verse twenty six chapter fourteen verse sixteen the water i give well everlasting life to see the full meaning of this figurative sentence it must be paraphrased the meaning seems to be something of this kind the gift of grace mercy and peace which i am ready to give shall be in the heart of him who receives it an ever-flowing source of comfort satisfaction and spiritual refreshment continuing and flowing on not only through this life but unto life eternal he that receives my gift of living water has a fountain opened in his soul of spiritual satisfaction which shall neither be dried up in this life or the life to come but shall flow on to all eternity let it be noted that the whole verse is a strong argument in favor of the doctrine of the perpetuity of grace and the consequent perseverance in the faith of believers it is difficult to understand how the armenian doctrine of the possibility of believers completely falling away and being lost can be reconciled with any natural interpretation of this verse zwingle thinks with much probability that the words a fountain in him point to the benefits which grace once received makes a man impart to others as well as enjoy himself see john chapter seven verse thirty eight rollock remarks on this verse let me say in a word what i feel you will find nothing either in heaven or in earth with which you will be satisfied and feel supplied except jesus christ alone with all that fullness of the godhead which dwells in him bodily 
Poole says, He who receiveth the Holy Spirit and the grace thereof, though he will be daily saying give, give, and continually desiring further supplies of grace, yet he shall never wholly want, never want any good thing that shall be needful for him. The seed of God shall abide in him, and his water shall be in him a spring supplying him until he comes to heaven. Verse 15. The woman saith, etc. In this verse, I think we see the first sparks of good in the woman's soul. Our Lord's words aroused a desire in her heart for this living water of which he had spoken. She does what our Lord said she ought to have done at first. She asks him to give her the water. Give me this water, that, thirst not, draw. The motives of the woman in making this request are variously explained. Some think, as Musculus, Calvin, Bucer, Brentius, Galter, Lightfoot, Poole, and Dyke, that the request was made in a sarcastic and sneering spirit, as though she would say, Truly this water would be a fine thing, if we could get it. Give it me, if you have it to give. Some think, as Augustine, Cyril, Bullinger, Rollock, Hildersam, Jansenius, and Nephanius, that the request was only the lazy, indolent wish of one who was weary of this world's labor, and yet could see nothing but the things of this world in our Lord's sayings, like the request of the Jews, Evermore give us this bread. John chapter 6, verse 34. It is as though she would say, Anything to save me the trouble of coming to draw water would be a boon. If you can do that for me, do it. As Bengal says, she wished to have this living fountain at her own house. Some think, as Chrysostom, Theophylact, and Euthymius, that the request was really the prayer of an anxious soul, aroused to some faint spiritual desires by the mention of eternal life. Hast thou eternal life to bestow? Give it to me. I venture to think that none of these three views is quite correct. The true motive of the request was probably a vague feeling of desire that the woman herself could hardly have defined. It is useless to analyze and scrutinize too closely the first languid and imperfect desires that arise in souls when the Spirit begins his work of conversion. It is folly to say that the first movings of a heart towards God must be free from all imperfect motives and all mixture of infirmity. The woman's motives in saying, Give me this water, were probably mixed and indefinite. Material water was not out of her thoughts, and yet she had probably some desires after everlasting life. Enough for us to know that she asked and received, she sought and found. Our great aim must be to persuade sinners to apply to Jesus, and to say to him, Give me to drink. If we forbid them to ask anything until they prove that they can ask in a perfect spirit, we should do no good at all. It would be as foolish to scrutinize the grammatical construction of an infant's cries as to analyze the precise motives of a soul's first breathings after God. If it breathes at all and says, Give, we ought to be thankful. Verse 16. Jesus saith, Go, call, husband, hither. This verse begins an entirely new stage in the history of the woman's conversion. From this point we hear no more of living water. Figurative language is dropped entirely. Our Lord's words become direct, personal, and plain. The woman had asked at last for living water. At once our Lord proceeds to give it to her. Our Lord's reasons for bidding the woman to call her husband have been variously interpreted. Some think that he only meant her to understand that he had spoken long enough to her, a solitary woman, and that before he proceeded further she must call her husband to be a witness of the conversation and to partake of the benefits he was going to confer. This seems the view of Chrysostom and Theophylact. Others think, 
with far more probability in my judgment that our lord's main object in naming the woman's husband was to produce in her mind conviction of sin and to show her his own divine knowledge of all things he knew that she had no husband and he purposefully named him in order to touch her conscience he always knew the thoughts of those to whom he spoke and he knew in the present case what the effect of his words would be it would bring to light the woman's besetting sin it is as though he said thou dost ask me for living water thou dost at last express a desire for that great spiritual gift which i am able to bestow well then i begin by bidding thee know thyself and thy sinfulness i will show thee that i know thy spiritual disease and can lay my finger on the most dangerous ailment of thy soul go call thy husband and come hither let it be noted that the first draught of living water which our lord gave to the samaritan woman was conviction of sin that fact is a lesson for all who desire to benefit ignorant and careless sinners the first thing to be taught to such persons when once we have got their attention is their own sinfulness and their consequent need of a saviour no one values the physician until he feels his disease augustine thinks that when our lord said call thy husband he meant cause thine understanding to be forthcoming thy understanding is not with thee i am speaking after the spirit and thou hearest after the flesh i can see no wisdom in this fanciful idea verse seventeen the woman answered no husband these words were an honest and truthful confession so far as they went whether the woman wished it to be supposed that she was a widow it would perhaps be hardly fair to inquire theophylact and euthymius suggest that she did wish to deceive our lord the way in which our lord receives her declaration makes it probable that she did not profess to be a widow and very likely her dress showed that she was not in this point of view the honesty of her confession is noteworthy there is always more hope of one who honestly and bluntly confesses sin than a smooth-tongued hypocrite jesus said thou hast well said husband our lord's commendation of the woman's honest confession deserves notice it teaches us that we should make the best of an ignorant sinner's words an unskilled physician of souls would probably have rebuked the woman sharply for her wickedness if her words led him to suspect it our lord on the contrary says thou hast well said verse eighteen thou hast had five husbands many foolish and unseemly things have been written about this sentence which it is not worth while to bring forward of course it is utterly improbable that the woman had lost five husbands by death and had been five times a widow the more likely explanation is that she had been divorced and put away by several husbands in succession divorces were notoriously common among the jews and in all probability among the samaritans for very trivial causes in the case however of the woman before us the second clause of the verse before us makes it likely that she had been justly divorced for adultery augustine regards these five husbands as significant of the five senses of the body which are as five husbands by which the soul of the natural man is ruled i cannot think that our lord meant anything of the kind euthymius mentions another allegorical view making the woman to typify human nature and the five husbands five different dispensations and him with whom she now lived the mosaic law this seems to me simply absurd origen says much the same it is well to know what patristic interpretation is he whom hast not thy husband these words show plainly that the samaritan woman was living in adultery up to the very day when our lord spoke to her our lord's perfect knowledge of the woman's past and present life is very noteworthy 
it ought to remind us how perfectly he is acquainted with every transaction of our own lives. From him no secrets are hid. In that sayest thou truly. There is a kindness very worthy of notice in these words. Wicked and abandoned as this Samaritan woman was, our Lord deals gently and kindly with her, and twice in one breath commends her confession. Thou hast well said, In that thou sayest truly. Kindness of manner like this will always be found a most important point in dealing with the ungodly. Scolding and sharp rebuke, however well deserved, have a tendency to harden and shut up hearts, to make people bolt their doors. Kindness, on the contrary, wins, softens, conciliates, and disarms prejudice. An unskilful sole physician would probably have ended his sentence by saying, Thou art a wicked woman, and if thou dost not repent, thou wilt be lost. All this would have been true, no doubt, but how different our Lord's grave and gentle remark, Thou sayest truly. Verse 19. The woman saith, I perceive, prophet. I think we see in this verse a great change in the Samaritan woman's mind. She evidently confesses the entire truth of what our Lord had just said, and turns to him as an anxious inquirer about her soul. It is as though she said, I perceive at last that thou art indeed no common person. Thou hast told me what thou couldst not have known, if thou wert not a prophet sent from God. Thou hast exposed sins which I cannot deny, and aroused spiritual concern which I would now fain have relieved. Now give me instruction." Let it be noted that the thing which first struck the Samaritan woman, and made her call Jesus a prophet, was the same that struck Nathanael, viz. our Lord's perfect knowledge. To call our Lord a prophet at first sight may seem not much, but it must be remembered that even after his resurrection, the two disciples going to Emmaus only described Jesus as a prophet mighty in deed and word. Luke chapter 24 verse 29. A clear knowledge of the divine nature of Messiah seems to have been one of the points on which almost the whole Jewish nation was ignorant. Even the learned scribes could not explain how Messiah was to be David's Lord and also David's son. Mark chapter 12, verse 37. Verse 20. Our fathers worshipped, etc. To see the full drift of this verse, we must carefully remember the state of the Samaritan woman's mind at this moment. I think that she spoke under spiritual anxiety. She was alarmed by having her sins suddenly exposed. She found herself for the first time in the presence of a prophet. She felt for the first time the necessity of religion. But at once the old question between the Jews and the Samaritans arose before her mind. How was she to know what was truth? What was she to believe? Her own people said that the Samaritan mode of worshipping God was correct. The Jews said that Jerusalem was the only place where men ought to worship. Between these two conflicting opinions, what was she to do? The natural ignorance of almost all unconverted people, when first aroused to thought about religion, appears strikingly in the woman's words. Man's first idea is to attach great importance to the outward mode of worshipping God. The first refuge of an awakened conscience is strict adherence to some outward form and zeal for the external part of religion. The woman's readiness to quote the fathers and their customs is an instructive instance of man's readiness to make custom and tradition his only rule of faith our fathers did so, is one of the natural man's favorite arguments. Calvin's comments on the expression, fathers, in this verse are very useful. He remarks, among other things, none should be reckoned fathers, but those who are manifestly the sons of God. When the woman spoke of this mountain, she doubtless meant the hill on which the rival temple of Samaria was built, to the bitter annoyance of the Jerusalem Jews. It was said that this temple was first built in the days of Nehemiah, 
by Sambalat, and that his son-in-law, the son of Joida, whom Nehemiah chased from him, was its first high priest. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 29. Some have gone so far as to maintain that the hill Gerizim at Samaria was the hill on which Abraham offered up Isaac, and that the words of the woman refer to this. The more common opinion is that Mount Moriah at Jerusalem was the place. When the woman says, Ye say, she doubtless includes the whole Jewish nation, of whom she regards our Lord as a representative. Musculus, Baxter, Scott, and Barnes think that the woman in this verse desired to turn away the conversation from her own sins to a subject of public controversy, and in this way to change the subject. I am not, however, satisfied that this view is correct. I prefer the view of Brentius, which I have already set forth, that she was truly impressed by our Lord's exposure of her wickedness, and made a serious inquiry about the things needful to salvation. She was aroused to seriousness, and asked what was true religion. Her own nation said one thing, the Jews said another. What was truth? In short, her words were only another form of the jailer's question, What shall I do to be saved? Verse 21. Jesus saith, Woman, believe me. The calmness, gravity, and solemnity of these opening words are very noteworthy. I tell you a great truth, which I ask you to credit and believe. Jansenius thinks that our Lord uses the expression, Believe me, because the truth he was about to impart was so new and strange that the woman would be apt to think it incredible. Steer remarks that this is the only time our Lord ever uses this expression, Believe me, in the Gospels. The hour cometh. The hour, or time here spoken of, means the time of the gospel, the hour of the Christian dispensation. You shall neither, this mountain, Jerusalem, worship, etc. Our Lord here declares that under the gospel there was to be no more distinction of places like Jerusalem. The old dispensation under which men were bound to go up to Jerusalem three times a year to attend the feasts and worship in the temple was about to pass away. All questions about the superior sanctity of Samaria or Jerusalem would soon be at an end. A church was about to be founded, whose members would find access to the Father everywhere, and would need no temple service, and no priests or sacrifices or altars in order to approach God. It was therefore a mere waste of time to be disputing about the comparative claims of either Samaria or Jerusalem. Under the gospel all places would soon be alike. It seems far from improbable that our Lord referred in this verse, to the prophecy of Malachi, in every place incense shall be offered to my name. Malachi chapter 1 verse 11. The utter passing away of the whole Jewish system seems clearly pointed at in this verse. To bring into the Christian church holy places, sanctuaries, altars, priests, sacrifices, gorgeous vestments, and the like, is to dig up that which has been long buried, and to turn to candles for light under the noonday sun. The favorite theory of the Irvingites, that we ought, as far as possible in our public worship, to copy the Jewish temple services and ceremonial, seems incapable of reconciliation with this verse. Calvin says, by calling God the Father in this verse, Christ seems indirectly to contrast him with the fathers whom the woman had mentioned, and to convey this instruction, that God would be common Father to all, so that he will be generally worshipped, and without distinction of place or nation. Verse 22. Ye worship, know not what. In this verse our Lord unhesitatingly condemns the religious system of the Samaritans, as compared with that of the Jews. 
the samaritans could show no scriptural authority no revelation of god commanding and sanctioning their worship whatever it was it was purely an invention of man which god had never formally authorized or accredited they had no warrant for believing that it was accepted they had no right to feel sure that their prayers praises and offerings were received in short all was uncertainty they were practically worshipping an unknown god meade remarks that the samaritan woman overlooked the object of worship in her question about the place you inquire concerning the place of worshipping but a far more important question is at issue between us viz the being to be worshipped respecting whom you are ignorant we know what we worship in contrast to the samaritan religious system our lord declares that the jews at any rate could show divine warrant and scriptural authority for all they did in their religion they could render a reason of their hope they knew whom they approached in their religious services salvation is of the jews our lord here declares that god's promises of a saviour and redeemer specially belong to the jerusalem jews they were the descendants of the tribe of judah and to them belonged the house and lineage of david on this point at any rate the samaritans had no right whatever to claim equality with the jews granting that the samaritans had any right to be called israelites they were of the tribe of ephraim from which it was nowhere said that messiah should spring and in truth the samaritans were of such mixed origin that they had no right to be called israelites at all i believe with olshausen that salvation in this verse was really intended to mean the saviour himself the use of the article in the greek is striking it is literally the salvation does not the saint zacchaeus point the same way this day is salvation come to this house luke chapter nineteen verse nine the expression we in this verse is interesting it is a wonderful instance of our lord's condescension and one that stands almost alone he was pleased to speak of himself just in the light that he appeared to the woman as one of the jewish nation i and all other jews know what we worship the folly of supposing that ignorance is to be praised and commended in religion as the mother of devotion is strongly condemned in this verse christ would have christians know what they worship the testimony borne to the general truth of the religious system of the jews in this place is very striking corrupt and wicked as scribes and pharisees were jesus declares that the jewish religion was true and scriptural it is a mournful proof that a church may retain a sound creed and yet be on the high road to destruction hildersam has a long note which is well worth reading on the words salvation is of the jews considering the times in which he lived it shows singularly clear views of god's continual purposes concerning the jewish nation he sees in the words the great truth that all god's revelations to man in every age have been made through the jews verse twenty three the hour cometh and now is these words mean that the times of the gospel approach and indeed have already begun they have begun by the preaching of the kingdom of god they will be fully brought in by my death and ascension and the establishment of the new testament church true worshippers worship spirit and truth our lord here declares who alone would be considered true worshippers in the coming dispensation of the gospel they would not be merely those who worshipped in this place or in that place they would not be exclusively jews or exclusively gentiles or exclusively samaritans the external part of the worship would be of no value compared to the internal state of the worshippers 
they only would be counted true worshippers who worshipped in spirit and in truth the words in spirit and in truth are variously interpreted and much has been written about them i believe the simplest explanation to be this the word spirit must not be taken to mean the holy spirit but the intellectual or mental part of man in contradistinction to the material or carnal part of man this distinction is clearly marked in first corinthians chapter seven verse thirty four holy in body and in spirit worship in spirit is a heart worship in contradistinction to all formal material carnal worship consisting only of ceremonies offerings sacrifices and the like when a jew offered a formal meat offering with his heart far away it was worship after the flesh when david offered in prayer a broken and contrite heart it was worship in spirit worship in truth means worship through the one true way of access to god without the medium of the sacrifices or priesthood which were ordained till christ died on the cross when the veil was rent and the way into the holiest made manifest by christ's death then and not till then men worshipped in truth before christ they worshipped through types and shadows and figures and emblems after christ they worshipped in truth the spirit is opposed to flesh truth to shadow spirit in short is heart service contrasted with lip worship and formal devotion truth is the full light of the christian dispensation contrasted with the twilight of the law of moses the view i have endeavored to give is substantially that of chrysostom and euthymius carroll quoted by ford says in spirit regards the inward power in truth the outward form the first strikes at hypocrisy the second at idolatry the father seeketh such worship him this is a remarkable sentence i believe it to mean that the hour is come in which the father has ordained from eternity that he will gather out of the world a company of true and spiritual worshippers he is even now seeking out and gathering in such worshippers the expression seeketh is peculiar there is something like it in the sentence the son of man is come to seek and to save that which is lost luke chapter 19 verse 10 it seems to show the exceeding compassion of the father and his infinite willingness to save souls he does not merely wait for men to come to him he seeks for them it also shows the wide opening of god the father's mercy under the gospel he no longer confines his grace to the jews he now seeks and desires to gather in everywhere true worshippers out of every nation the clause appears to me specially intended to encourage the samaritan woman let her not trouble herself with difficulties about the comparative claims of the samaritan and jewish systems was she willing to be a spiritual worshipper that was the one question which deserved her attention trapp observes how should this fire up our hearts to spiritual worship that god seeks for such worshippers verse twenty four god is a spirit our lord here declares to the samaritan woman the true nature of god let her cease to think that god was such a one as man and that he could not be found or approached or addressed like a mere earthly monarch except at one particular place let her learn to have higher nobler and more exalted views of the being with whom sinners have to do let her know this day that god was a spirit the declaration before us is one of the most lofty and definite sayings about god's nature which is to be found in the whole bible that such a declaration should have been made to such a person as the samaritan woman is a wonderful instance of christ's condescension to define precisely the full meaning of the expression is past man's understanding 
the leading idea most probably is that god is an immaterial being that he dwelleth not in temples made with hands and that he is not like ourselves therefore absent from one place when he is present at another these things are all true but how little we can realize them cornelius alipati gives an excellent summary of the opinions of heathen philosophers on the nature of god in his commentary on this verse they worship must worship spirit truth our lord draws this broad conclusion from the statement of god's nature which he has just made if god is a spirit it behooves those who would worship him acceptably to worship in spirit and in truth it is unreasonable to suppose that he can like any worship which does not come from the heart or can be so well pleased with worship which is offered through types and ceremonies as with worship offered through the true way which he has provided and is now revealing the importance of the great principle laid down in this and the preceding verse can never be overrated any religious teaching which tends to depreciate heart worship and to turn christianity into a mere formal service or which tends to bring back jewish shadows ceremonies and services and to introduce them into christian worship is on the face of these remarkable verses most unscriptural and deserving of reprobation of course we must not admit the idea that in this and the preceding verses jesus meant to pour contempt on the ceremonial law which god himself had given but he plainly teaches that it was an imperfect dispensation given because of man's ignorance and infirmity as we give pictures to children in teaching them it was in fact a schoolmaster to christ galatians chapter three verse twenty four to want men to return to it is as absurd as to bid grown-up people to begin learning the alphabet by pictures in an infant school on the other hand as beza remarks we must not run into the extreme of despising all ordinances sacrifices and outward ceremonies in religion these things have their use and value however much they may be abused. Verse 25. The woman saith, I know, Messias, Christ, etc. This verse is an interesting one. It shows the woman at last brought to the very state of mind in which she would be prepared to welcome a revelation of Christ. She had been told of living water, and had expressed a desire for it. She had been told her own sin, and had been unable to deny it. She had been told the uselessness of resting on any formal membership of the Samaritan Church, and the necessity of spiritual and heart-worship of God. And now what can she say? It is all true, she feels. She cannot gainsay it. But what can she do? To whom can she go? Whose teaching can she follow? All she can do is to say that she knows Messiah is one day coming, and that he will make all things clear and plain. It is evident that she wishes for him. She is uncomfortable and sees no relief for her newly raised perplexities unless messiahs should appear the mention of messiahs in this verse makes it clear that the samaritans were not altogether ignorant of the old testament and that there was an expectation of a redeemer of some kind among them as well as among the jews the existence of a general expectation of this sort throughout the east at the time when our lord appeared on earth is a fact to which even heathen writers have testified when the woman says he will tell us all things we must probably not inquire too closely into what she meant it is very likely that she had only a vague feeling that messias would remove all doubts and show all things needful to salvation chrysostom remarks on this verse the woman was made dizzy by christ's discourse and fainted at the sublimity of what he said and in her trouble saith i know that messias cometh 
wordsworth observes that the samaritan woman had a clearer knowledge of messiah's office than the jews generally showed she looked for him as a teacher they looked for him as a conquering king beza and a clark think that the words which is called christ in this verse are st john's parenthetical explanation of the word messiah it is certainly rather unlikely that the woman would have used them in addressing a jew yet most commentators think that they were her words verse twenty six jesus saith i speak am he these words are the fullest declaration which our lord ever made of his own messiahship which the gospel writers have recorded that such a full declaration should be made to such a person as the samaritan woman is one of the most wonderful instances of our lord's grace and condescension related in the new testament at last the woman obtained an answer to one of her first questions art thou greater than our father jacob when the answer came it completely converted her soul rollock remarks on this verse how ready and willing christ is to reveal himself to a sinner's soul the very moment that this woman expressed any desire for messiah he at once revealed himself to her i am he quisnell observes it is a great mistake to suppose that the knowledge of the mysteries of religion ought not to be imparted to women by the reading of scripture considering this instance of the great confidence christ reposed in this woman by his manifestation of himself the abuse of the scriptures and the sin of heresies did not proceed from the simplicity of women but from the conceited learning of men in leaving the whole passage there are several striking points which ought never to be forgotten a our lord's mercy is remarkable that such a one as he should deal so graciously with such a sinner is a striking fact b our lord's wisdom is remarkable how wise was every step of his way in dealing with this sinful soul c our lord's patience is remarkable how he bore with the woman's ignorance and what trouble he took to lead her to knowledge d our lord's power is remarkable what a complete victory he won at last how almighty must that grace be which could soften and convert such a carnal and wicked heart we must never despise any soul after reading this passage none can be worse than this woman but christ did not despise her we must never despair of any soul after reading this passage if this woman was converted any one may be converted finally we must never contemn the use of all wise and reasonable means in dealing with souls there is a wisdom which is profitable to direct in approaching ignorant and ungodly people which must be diligently sought end of section sixteen